Welcome to Packet Pushes Heavy Networking. And today we're talking about cloud access, security brokers, and data loss prevention with sponsor Palo Alto Networks. Look, cloud access security brokers are often abbreviated as CASB, C-A-S-B. And it's a single term for actually quite a wide group of technologies that implement security in SaaS and cloud environments where the control and the monitoring is actually way more challenging than what we've done, you know, historically when we look back at where we've come from with the perimeter and the data center. And now we're in this sort of dispersed infrastructure capability where sometimes it's SaaS, sometimes it's overlays, sometimes it's an off-prem cloud, sometimes it's on-prem cloud, sometimes it's heritage data center architectures. But particularly cloud environments have very poor visibility and monitoring. The data can be placed in different locations, like it could go into an object store, it could go into a database of different types of databases. And then you need to know who's accessing it, where's it going, what's that data doing? Maintaining access control is unreasonably difficult. And then offering compliance and governance to the business at large who want to know what's going on. Are you compliant with various standards? What's the governance? How do you know what's going on? Who's got the data? Where is it going? Who's copying it? So it's very difficult to do all of those things. That's a real problem in the modern environment. Each cloud has its own proprietary security tools, has its own proprietary APIs, they probably don't work across all of your estate if you've got multiple clouds, and they all have proprietary APIs. And then we can start to talk about threat protection, identity and access management, shadow IT and mobile access, and it all goes into the list. And what CASB tries to do is to bring all of those security issues into a single product family. So all of those, a CASB is not a single thing, it's a group of things. And so today's show is going to move across a spectrum of features inside of the Palo Alto network portfolio. Joining us today is Prasikant. He's a director of product management at Palo Alto Networks, and he's taking on the task for the next 40 minutes to talk about how Palo Alto Networks brings CASB, cloud access security brokers, and data loss prevention. Let's get straight into it, Prasith. I've tried to give an overview of CASB I've tried in a very quick sort of a format, but you've summarized it here with three significant challenges to safeguard data. Let's fire off with that. If you look at a modern enterprise that's there today, the data challenges tend to be around threefold. So one is data sprawl. So how massive of an organization has in terms of exponential growth of data and the data that tends to be typically unstructured, but also quickly navigates into structured, semi-structured and so on. And then the data becomes more diverse, dispersed across various formats, repositories, and maintaining control around the sensitive nature of the information becomes increasingly complex. So that's the data sprawl angle to it. Second one tends to be generative AI. So everybody hears about this buzzword and it's what is going on around this. The advent of Gen AI introduces something very, very unique. So it's very mm -hmm. important to understand how is Gen AI different fundamentally, right? So um, I would say that uh, it's self-explanatory in terms of the technology is generating new data based on user context and input. Right. So in contrast, if you look at traditional AI, it has been used to majority of the times classify, organize and recognize patterns in existing data. Right. Yeah. So, but if you look at these LLM models, easily memorize information. So if you type something that's sensitive, it quickly goes and memorizes this info and it makes all the more important for AI data risk to be a key consideration for organizations in today's modern data landscape. So from the security point of view, you're hinting at the fact that A, you've got to create the data. You've got to export yes. it from wherever it lives. You've got to funnel it into the AI system, okay. clean it. Lots of people have to handle it to format it and to check it's valid and all that sort of stuff. And then when you run you know, an AI to model across that or whether you apply AI to, to try and do some inference from that, you then generate a whole new set of data, which then has to be added to the security portfolio. That's sort of it, summarizing? Absolutely. It's right. And the employees are absolutely trying to leverage all of these new systems 
and mm-hmm. make sure they're working faster, smarter. Uh, so uh, everybody is looking to optimize for the right set of outcomes in terms of um, uh, making sure their productivity is uh, multifold, right? And this dynamic yeah. nature adds a whole uh, notion of monitoring, control, sensitive information from leaking into these, uh, I would say, quote unquote, unsanctioned Gen AI platforms, right? That's the that's the whole nomenclature around tolerated, sanctioned, unsanctioned, all of those come into play. <laughs> End users never use unsanctioned applications. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> That's true. Shadow That's true. IT, dark IT. <laughs> you know. But I think the larger point is that with generative AI, end users could be accidentally, you know, building out a, a document that might include personally identifiable information or other sensitive data that the organization, for a variety of reasons, would not want leaking out uh, onto the internet. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's right. But that's not new. That's something that we've always done. The trick here is there's just so much of it. That's right. And the models are basically learning from it, right? That's the the angle. It's able to memorize the information and reproduce it in new forms, shapes uh, that goes along. The third one, I would uh, just to close the loop on the initial question here, Greg. So I would say that the interconnected SaaS. So SaaS, uh, if you look at a Slack or a Salesforce, the number of controls that they tend to uh, add into their platforms, just enormous. Every release note that you look at it, it's just new set of controls, new ways to be more productive. So I would say that SaaS is more interconnected than you ever imagined, right? So that means your data and applications performance and all that becomes very risky. I would say enterprise SaaS is now more of an entire platform. It's not just a SaaS featuring marketplaces, plugins, browser plugins, API integrations, and a lot, lot more. I would say that it's a whole new complex security stack that arises mm-hmm. from unauthorized um, apps, like for example, third-party connected apps is one angle to it. Excessive mm-hmm. permissions, you just give uh, risky users different accesses to look at service uh, service accounts. It could be a local account, it could be a uh, yeah. global account, people who are dorf- dormant or orphaned users, that's another angle to it. So people who had access to production data, they just quit. Uh, what happens to the data? Uh, let's say they hmm. created a service account. What happens then? You don't want it to be deleted just because somebody left the company and they got orphaned and then, you know, that's exactly. Loss. That's just outright loss, but there's also somebody else could find it. Absolutely. So it's a whole new risk angle to this, where third-party apps and third-party controls, dormant users, orphaned users, all of those adds into the mix, I would say. So just to summarize, I would say that data sprawl uh, tends to be the first angle at which people come in and as far as modern landscape, then the Gen AI angle, and then the whole notion of interconnected SaaS. So those, I would say, technology inflection around these gives you opportunities to do two things, I would say, uh, give comprehensive visibility across portfolio and control that's at a granular level. That's where the CASB DLP portfolios come into the mix. So if you're going to get control, uh, you then, I mean, to have that control, you need to sort of classify all, all the data that you've got because that's classification is what you're going to build policies around. So that seems like a pretty significant problem. How does Palo Alto approach this this data security classification problem? The way we think, again, uh, we have to organize ourselves in terms of where the goals and the missions tend to be. So our primary focus tends to be how can we build classification engines that are precise, purpose-built for specific workloads that customers are uh, looking to accomplish, right? So which means the techniques that yield the optimal detection outcomes while considering factors such as accuracy, cost efficiency, performance, they tend to be top of mind. So it's a balance of a group of techniques that we uh, provide out of the box. So uh, I would say that our classification tends to span over a spectrum. So ranging from straightforward data matching classification techniques 
that utilize mm-hmm. the typical regular expressions, keywords, dictionaries, data validators like the lunch exam and so on, all the way up to a whole new advanced set of capabilities that harness machine learning, ranging from exact data match, document classifiers, they're able to identify both exact and similar matches, right? So if you're a mm. um, if you're a car manufacturer, you have invoices that you care about. You don't want your typical, let's say, Amazon third-party invoices, right? You know, you don't care about your retailer retail invoice, but you care about uh, your car manufacturing invoices that are mm-hmm. proprietary to you. So all those purpose-built customer IP protection, if you may, uh, those are all top of mind. And we are able to provide purpose-built solutions that um, leverage AI ML to actually detect customer intellectual properties. So you're doing that by looking for data in motion. That's right. So the key here is you're not scanning data at rest. This is all the data in motion from a, you know, from a design strategy point of view, it's got to move through a firewall or move through an overlay network and hit an appliance or a, a virtual appliance or physical appliance somewhere. And then as those bits move through the network effectively, Palo Alto brings that, you know, firewall, right? If you've been using Palo Alto, you know Palo Alto, you're going to be able to pattern match the data moving through the appliance and say, or or use heuristics or be able to recognize that this is data in flight and I can fingerprint it, I can recognize it, I can tag it, I can flag on it via a whole different way of classifiers to say, this is what I want. So this is what you're saying. You hit it right on the nail. So I think it is in line, light speed, I would say. And Mm. also uh, the other angle to this is data at rest. So even for data at rest, there is an opportunity to actually go and classify them so that Mm. you actually optimize for efficiency in line, which means now in line, I don't need to go and reclassify this whole list of large applications or large documents, right? Imagine the size of the documents, the latency it introduces, all of those things. We're very Mm. mindful if it's already classified, you don't need to go and reclassify all of these things. Right. You can just do the inspection or the detection straight up. You don't need to classify the data dynamically. And therefore, so if this is, you know, MySQL, you don't need to classify that. You don't need to run an AI algorithm to detect that, to know what this is. You would only apply that when all of a sudden it's like, I've never seen this SaaS app before. I need to do something to classify it. Maybe I... And this is, I think, one of the things I just want to call out here, this is only something that a vendor like Palo Alto Networks can do, right? As a customer, I can't really run an AI, I can't train an AI to recognize packets in in motion or data in motion, right? That is the, a literal thing that only vendors can do for you, uh, uh, you know, at this time. And the footprint that Palo Alto Networks has, the amount of constraints under which each of these control points demands a solution to be, so it's just multi-fold. The, the problem tends to be multi-fold. So if you can build best of class, best of breed kind of capabilities for the respective constraints under which we operate, then it becomes much more easier to tie this whole together as a data security platform. So is there a training period where I'm actually you know, pointing this Palo Alto capability at uh, a bunch of my repositories to say, here's a bunch of my data, let's build classifications around it? Yeah, so on day zero, there's a bunch of pre-trained classifiers that you can use out of the box. Mm -hmm. So on day zero, you don't need to go and train. There's no baselining behavior. But over the period, all our supervised, unsupervised uh, learning capabilities kicks in. So that way, customers have the ability to have a baseline, a trend over a certain period. And then we provide recommendations on top of it, where there are new opportunities for you to either go discover classified data or even enforce policy recommendations. So I would say twofold on day zero, what you get and on day uh, 90, what you get in terms of uh, recommendations and proactive uh, uh, data security. Ah. So from a deployment point of view, if you're thinking I want this, I would start off with a set of default classifiers that are well-known applications. 
That's and great. that you could apply that on day one, you know, traffic types. I know, I know what Microsoft Office looks like. I know what AWS, you know, management traffic looks like and so on and so forth. But you would suddenly say, oh, there's a whole bunch of extra applications here I don't recognize. And they would start to be learned and trained over the next days and weeks. Absolutely. So we want to give you, give customers the ability to have their risk profile, what is um, happening in their environment, and then provide mm. these recommendations purpose-built for specific data uh, I would say mm-hmm. visibility and lineage and all that that we are seeing right. in their specific environments. And then the rest of the outcomes tend to be specific for customers and their data in their environments. But I think the key here is gradual. Yes, I don't have to go and you know do this analysis of the and identify every single thing and you know blah, 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 blah. I could start today, bring in a first pass of security, and then there's this gradual progressive identification of each new application, each whatever. And that's going to go on infinitely as new applications and new traffic flows emerge and then they need to be classified and and studied and so forth, right? And there is the angle, Greg, around uh, compliance and regulatory mandate. So it changes every day and the new uh, and the amount of PI, personal information, it changes every day. There's new, new things uh, that keep emerging. There's always the opportunity to incrementally work on newer detection patterns and then Mm -hmm. enforce it across customer uh, data, I would say. It it seems like the zero day case would be fairly easy for some categories of data like, hey, this looks like someone has attached an Excel file full of social security numbers or credit card numbers and they're trying to mail it out of the organization and that's not allowed. But I'm thinking about things like, you know, if I'm emailing a, a customer and writing to them about their medical records and I'm not sending them medical records, but that keyword medical record could trigger a flag that might you know, cause the system to go off. Or I feel like that's where the difficulty comes in with things like DLP. You hit it right on it, said Drew. So in terms of, is it any nine-digit number uh, an SSN? Is it nine-digit number with a whole notion of keywords? Or is it a, a specific thing that passes a lunch check? Or is it, uh, let's say, a key context around it? Uh, mm-hmm. So it's it's a whole uh, orchestra that has to come together in order to give you confidence. This is where I think confidence comes in, whether uh, something that, that we detect, is it high confidence, medium, low? So people actually manage their uh, data security portfolio based on the confidence. So that way they can prioritize incidents, prioritize alerts. And yeah. uh, that, that's where the whole notion of even natural language understanding comes in, where we are able to give you context and actionable snippets so that you have a high degree of confidence of what it is and give you evidence like storage. You have a repository of customer-hosted storage, which contains sensitive information of choice, where they can go in and do forensic analysis on and top of. Uh, okay. I want to ask a deployment question, if I may, because I'm a very, you know, let's do this today. Let's say I was a customer who just had Palo Alto firewalls at the edge of my data center. I could start this just there today to recognize what's egressing my network. And then I might build, um, let's say I built an SD-WAN, a SASE SD-WAN with the, with the Palo Alto, and then... Can I then combine the two together and they just become one? I just keep adding data sources and then my ability to start doing this security function, this CASB is then in place? So the way we think about it is from a network security persona perspective. So you are welcome to add any number of control points of choice. From a CASB DLP perspective, we take twofold, hybrid model, right? API and inline. So out of band versus inline. So as you add more sources of uh, traffic that we're able to see and inspect for sensitive content analysis, we continue to uh, expand the amount of visibility that we give customers. And uh, something interesting that we've observed is on a typical average, enterprise contains two petabytes of sensitive data. So there's always volumes of data that comes into what we see as a visibility perspective. And then we continue to do the classification both out of band and inline mm-hmm. uh, uh, in the path of traffic. I think the second thing here is that this would also start to get into detecting shadow IT. 
So if you've got a branch out there, someone signed up for a SaaS app and suddenly they're exporting data and you've got the SASE slash SD-WAN type capabilities in place and you've got these tools from Palo Alto Networks, you would then be able to say, hang on, somebody signed up for some AI service and they're uploading data to it. Yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, Shadow IT absolutely plays a, plays a critical part. So the way we think about it is uh, giving you complete visibility in terms of the apps that are uh, flowing through your system based on traffic analysis and also enriching them based on attributes, right? So it's attributes like compliance. Is MFA turned on in this application of interest? Yeah. Uh, does it comply with SOC 2? Does it comply with GDPR? Stuff like that. So absolutely, SaaS line product of Palo Alto Networks gives you that risk-centric approach towards visibility of data usage and analysis. Yeah. And we take it a step further. Uh, you know what? We already support granular DLP or data protection enforcements for applications that are critical that we've identified. So we give you proactive policy recommendations. Yeah. So in addition to just usage analysis, we actually give you policies that you can go in and implement on those applications of interest. I was thinking sort of like, you know, somebody's in a branch office and they're creating uh, macros in Excel. And then suddenly they're using chat GPT to upload data to get the macro, right? Well, yeah. That's a straight out DLP issue at one point, but it's also a straight out unsanctioned use of SaaS because you're exporting your proprietary data into ChatGPT, which then ingests it. So this would detect that if I'm right. You're right. So it'll, it'll combine a variety of things. That's where I think the whole yeah. orchestra comes in. So what applications yeah. you're using, what are your user groups and attributes associated with it? Uh, what categories tend to be, right? Like, it, is mm -hmm. it, a, so we have a broad stroke approach uh, to this where we say AI-based applications, right? So if it's an AI-based application, then there could be a list of whether it's a chat-based application, video-based application, some other thing. So user-generated mm -hmm. content, all of those things. So we give you application categories at a granular level and then give you yeah. user activities. What kind of activities are you doing? What is your posture? Which device? Is it a managed, unmanaged? What kind of data profile? I'm also thinking like AI is in so many, is, is an add-on to so many things now, like Cisco WebEx and Zoom both have AI enhancements where they can take the notes on every meeting that you have and then send them out as minutes. But equally, they're taking notes, right? Which for certain types of, you know, <laughs> for, for some 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 use cases, that's data leakage. And in other cases, that's a feature, right? So it's one of those. So that sort of uh, application access control from the network is really the only place you can do that is in the network because somebody might turn it on and you might not know, or you might be connecting to a third party Zoom and they've got that feature turned on, but your company doesn't, right? Is that the sort of thing? Is it that granular? No, absolutely. So there are two angles I would take at this, right? So one is the ability for somebody to even record and is it even allowed? Like, are you authorized to do it? But of course, in, the, in today's world, everybody's recorded uh, information is a free speech kind of thing. So I think mm. uh, the way we think about it is, what are the insights that you get from that, right? Like, is, is there documents that are getting uploaded? Is there transcripts that are getting, like, uh, saved in, let's say, a collaborative shared space? So the two angles we take is uh, what we call as SaaS security posture management, so the cleanliness or the hygiene of the application in its entirety. And the other angle is the data leakage prevention, right? Like the, the recordings, the chat messages, all of those. So file, non-file based content. So both of them come hand in hand, I would say, as far as security outcomes for I would say collaborative apps like Zoom or um, or um, Slack or Teams or any of those things, I would say. So are you able to provide DLP capabilities when I'm using a third-party uh, SaaS app that I don't, as an IT person, have any control over? Absolutely. So I think that's, again, twofold. That's a great, great, uh, great um, uh, leeway into this question where 
what we do is we help customers to discover and centralize the posture of security so that way um, you have a continuous monitoring and continuous alerting as far as best practices for those app SaaS applications of interest. So um, that what that entails is hundreds of built-in policies, misconfigurations, ability to identify access network anomalies. That's a whole um, angle to this. The other angle is what you said in terms of uh, data protection. So we have a broad stroke approach in terms of browsing, web browsing and capabilities mm -hmm. around um, uh, category-based blocking and all of those things. So first step is visibility, which I said, which is giving you visibility into the third-party apps that are connecting and using to your sanctioned application. And the mm -hmm. other one is control around it. So absolutely, we do, uh, we do both of those capabilities. So there's a key here. There's actually a difference here between application access control and the difference between SaaS security posture. So right. some of what I was just talking about is SaaS, like Zoom and WebEx are, are SaaS services. You can't, you know, you don't get much control over them. You don't know where the IP addresses are. But apps, are, you can also do access control of apps inside the wall, so inside of your companies itself. Those two are both handled here? Absolutely. Um, both are handled here. But uh, the, the way I would think about this one specifically is, we help customers organize their, um, I would say, use cases, right? So typically yeah. when people come to us for CASB or DLP or any of these things, we tell them what are your goals and priorities. And the goals yeah. tend to be achieving compliance. Any people have a compliance checkbox, so that's like, hey, I need the compliance mandate, check it out, right? The second yeah. one tends to be uh, risk of data leak. So some people genuinely care about risk of data leaks. And then the th third and the most important where you, Greg, have highlighted. care about data leaks. I think most people. Well, you, you'd be surprised. Uh, no, you'd be... You know, I would actually, I was just going to call you up and say, like, actually, I don't think most people care about data leaks. I think it's but, only a few. Yeah. I'll give you even an example. So I spoke to yeah. a big uh, news corporation and they said, yeah. look, my data is, pub uh, is better if it's shared with most people. So they don't really care about uh, holding on yeah. to that data. Think about it that way, right? So they yeah. don't care about data leak. They more care about compliance, regulatory mandates, all of those things. And mm -hmm. also like free, uh, their uh, news, news corporations tend to be uh, free speech anyway, right? So yeah. uh, they want more Whereas evangelism. a healthcare firm would be on the other end of this, right? They exactly. No data leaks, but they also need to be able to audit that and publish compliance reports for HIPAA or for, you know, for whichever you know, under whichever government you are under, they all of the governments require some sort of compliance to make sure you're able to prove that you've met some minimum security standards and so forth. And so you have to collect all the personal data, you have to know where it is, you have to be able to track it. And then if it comes, whenever that personal data becomes data in motion, that's the problem. Usually you've got processes when it's data at rest. It's in a database, the database is secured, you watch it, you have some sort of identity management to restrict who can get access, if the backups go somewhere safe and so forth. But when it goes data in motion here to an AI system in the cloud to do some sort of model, that's when it all becomes unstuck. That's really what we're talking about here is that fluid changing nature, that dynamic nature of security posture management. Absolutely, you're right. And the, and the final thing tends to be least privilege. How do you ensure least privilege? You, you've touched upon this quite a bit, but mm. I guess um, how what is least privilege? So um, that's that's where this zero trust concepts come into uh, come into place, and this posture concepts come into place, where you can take a broad stroke approach towards least privilege outcomes, and then go deeper with DLP and other specific user based, group based kind of policies. So I think um, that those those tend to be top of mind and the way we approach this problem. Right? Mm. So one of the things that we have with SaaS so posture management, right, is you've got so many SaaS apps and we sort of alluded to this shadow IT or dark IT and suddenly you find something. How do you handle the remediation workflow? So once you've identified either, you know, some sort of 
backdoor system where someone's engaged to SaaS or you need to change the settings, like as we talked about Zoom with its you know note-taking capability, what's the remediation workflow look like in SSPM? The first step tends to be in terms of uh, simplifying the process. So we do offer one-click remediations. So when we say one-click, it's, uh, it's identifying your vulnerability or your poorly configured um, SaaS configuration and then providing you with some kind of a one-click uh, option. But many customers tend to be like, hey, that's just too uh, intrusive for me. So we provide them manual remediation steps and also workflow. Like they might not have all the uh, permissions in order to go and do something. So it's a workflow to uh, systems like Jira or ServiceNow where it generates a ticket for specific owners to go and perform actions on top of them. So the integration is very pivotal in terms of incident response. That way, people are able to do two things. One, either do the automated remediation or have manual processes defined so that it's meticulously documented, tracked for any other uh, future forensic purposes. When you have these types of SaaS apps, you've also got data associated with it. So if I've got a SaaS app out there and you know I, I'm thinking of various sales tools and maybe there's a salesperson who's uploaded a bunch of customer data to that because they want to use a certain sales tool or they want to you know, create an email list for their customers or something like that. How do you, are you able to tell me the data risk there? Because what data was taken is the question. If it's just names and addresses, that's one thing. If it's names, addresses and, you know, their health data, that's a whole other issue. Can you help with that? Again, going back to the premise of how customers see this data risk as it entails tends to be twofold. One is how risky is the piece of data? Is it even sensitive? The second Mm. one is what is your likelihood of breach? and likelihood of breach in terms of misconfigurations, right? So if you're poorly configured, your likelihood becomes higher. But if you are, uh, let's say, poorly configured, but the application, let's say Box or Dropbox, has no sensitive data in it, it's all marketing material, then you're like uh, very, very uh, less tolerant, right? So the way we think about it is uh, we provide a numeric risk-centric view of sensitive data across various breakdowns, contributing factors, I would say, applications, locations, data profiles, data patterns, all of those things, and then provide the uh, ability to track these changes or changes over over a period of time. So that way people are able to uncover high-risk activity in their environment Mm -hmm. on production data, both across cloud and in terms of sovereignty in terms of people accessing uh, from, let's say, Singapore versus um, New Zealand or stuff like that. So the ability to see the data transfers, movements and all that. So there's a certain amount of automation capability here, like you've got AI and ML and you can flag me with some alerts, but you're still going to need to be engaged with this system and hunting. You're still going to need to be threat hunting inside of it to say, oh, hang on, that's not what I was expecting but even though I'm still doing that, I've then got a bunch of tools, I think is what I heard you say, to say, I can now go and look at, evaluate that. So instead of actually knowing what the business is doing, I can say, oh, that's personal identifiable information that's being exported, um, you know, throw out the Halley hand grenade of Antioch and let's panic because there's data being breached and somebody needs to get fired. We need to get, you know, the the CSO, the CISO involved because this is a critical issue or it's oh, look, somebody sent out some marketing material in a non-standard way, Uh, you know, that'll come up in the next meeting. Yeah, so uh, two kinds of personas, again, we try to deal with. The first one is customers who do not have a simple SOAR tool, SIM tool kind of choice, where Mm. uh, they they use our products for native incident response remediation. So we try to cater to those personas. And then there is the whole other folks who want to take all this data and stitch in their platforms of choice. So we provide both kinds of controls. The ones I'm talking about is more around native capabilities that we are trying to provide from a forensic Mm. and a data management and a data risk mitigation standpoint uh, for customers. 
What about risks that might be time sensitive? So for example, you mentioned the marketing department and maybe their information isn't sensitive, but if they're getting, they're pulling together marketing materials around a, a, a brand new product that's got, you know, some proprietary technology in it, it could be sensitive until that product gets released. Or I'm thinking quarterly financial results, very sensitive before it goes public, not so much afterward. Can you um, accommodate sort of a time sensitivity in your uh, policies, how you categorize data and what you do with it? Absolutely. So I think this is where angle of data risk and dynamic policies come into play. So this is uh, something absolutely we we are uh, we are able to do in terms of data activity monitoring, I would say. So based on uh, dynamically having insights, flow into your policy configuration. So these can be done in an automated way. So mostly I would say autonomous way to get data risk and also configure enforce policies. Right. But those policies are dynamic. I could say, I don't want to see personally identifiable data leak out across any of my boundaries ever. And there's a whole bunch of fluid capability underneath that to be able to say, oh, I know this is, you know, Palo Alto is going to be able to say to me, I know that is PII. I know this is PII. I know that service handles PII. It needs deeper inspection or flagging or something like that. that. If I try and break that down into real work, that's what we're talking about? That's right. So we have this heterogeneous construct called data profile, and the profile tends to be a combination of file formats, document types, patterns, keywords, regular expressions. Mm-hmm. All of these, when they bundle together, you have this whole big construct. You can even take EDM indices, IDM indices, all of these things, bundle mm-hmm. it as part of a comprehensive data profile strategy, and then uh, allow it to be uh, a part of your policy construct so that it's dynamic Mm -hmm. and it's also flexible in terms of and granular in terms of the uh, detections that you're looking to um, search for. In regard to CASB, because we started off the whole conversation about this, um, what are you able to do in regards integrating CASB with uh, my network? That's where I think inline capabilities come into play. So uh, uh, the way we uh, think about inline DLP is anything that deals with Prisma Access or Palo Alto NGFW, both virtual and physical firewalls, we're able to hook up a cloud-delivered detection engine and then go through using our inline DLP capabilities with consistent policies in terms of detections, consistent policies in terms of prevention, allow block, quarantine, stuff like that, and then uh, uh, manage it via the centrally managed, uh, cloud-managed experience as far as the uh, data protection is concerned. So threefold, I would say, uh, give you complete visibility, complete control, and then manage an incident response remediation workflows that tend to be standardized. When you say complete control, can I get granular in terms of for this particular SaaS application, you know, this category of users are allowed to do X, these categories of users are allowed to do X, Y, Z, depending on their roles in the organization and the, the capabilities of the SaaS app? Absolutely. So we do integrate with what we call as a cloud identity engine within Palo Alto Networks, where we uh, um, provide you uh, the ability to leverage the users, groups, all of that that's available as part of those constructs, Mm -hmm. and then um, manage a policy that's uh, comprehensive in terms of data profiles, file formats, uh, inclusion criteria, exclusion criteria, referenceable objects uh, with, let's say, managed devices, unmanaged, stuff like that and then provide something that's comprehensive. And in terms of setting all of these policies, is this entirely a you know security issue, a networking issue? Because when we're talking about DLP, that's all kinds of data across the whole organization. So who gets involved in, in classification and in setting policies? A good question. So this is where I think uh, th- this market is fast evolving. So in terms of practitioners and people who get involved, I've noticed a wide variety of them. There are data security practitioners, there are infosec people, there are cloud security architects, you'll be surprised, cloud security architects involved very, very heavily. Mm-hmm. And uh, many, many other, uh, I would say, uh, 
cross functional teams privacy teams which all become like influencers i would say where they are uh, influencing the verdict but i guess there's just a large cohort of people who i've seen across uh, organizations who tend to be involved so you're going to need a big table to get everybody around yeah at this point i would say yes data data <laughs> is front and front and center for everybody top of mind for our executives and uh, especially with the new regulations and reportings and filings this becomes front and center as far as that data protection is concerned so it also venture the legal probably has to be there in some cases. Yeah. Yep. And it, it's it's such a painful issue that sort of stuff like you know nobody wants to generate those reports but you have to. And so you really don't want to be doing you know sitting there at the on the day before submission dragging out all the data to send up in a report you really want to click on something and move on to something useful. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So I think yeah. that's where the executive wants it the incident response practitioner practitioner once said when you're when you're in a breach or when you're in any of any of the anomalous uh, deviated patterns uh, then you want to be able to um, identify it quickly triage it uh, have a generated report that's easily digestible for uh, people mm -hmm. who are of interested so that unified data architecture that can fulfill all these experiences um, again in a unified way across control points right you have the um, uh, network you have saas you have email um, you have the public cloud all of those pieces have to come together so that it can have consistent common unified experiences mm. for all of these practitioners i think another angle here is that this product set that we're talking about from from palo is actually a, what used to be 20 or 30 tools separately it, it, like there's this whole convergence going on in security i talk about it a lot on the different shows your this product actually replaces what would have been a whole suite of products that your sock would have run and you could converge down on one interface one set of dashboards one set of you know consistent approach to something is that right is that idea correct the the idea is pretty correct so it's fast that's why this space is fast evolving so um, that's why I included even when personas who are uh, talking yeah. about these products it tends to be cloud security architects it's it ops teams uh, it's yeah. data security who tends to be the economic buyer, but then there are like legal teams like um, uh, you folks were saying, uh, line of business owners, application owners, they are incentivized, right? Because it's my application, what are you doing with it, right? So are you going to throttle my performance? Um, then you have uh, regulatory teams, compliance teams, networking teams. Uh, so absolutely, if you think about architecture uh, and where this is headed, the unified data architecture that people care about and something that can help all of these different line of uh, business owners, so that uh, they get a common understanding when, they, when it all goes down to the pyramid, right? So top of the guy wants the same uh, words that you use as far as uh, data protection is concerned. So one thing I don't think we talked about was what are my response options if a policy gets triggered? I, I assume block is one because there's definitely data I don't want going out. Um, allow probably because it's okay. But are there gray areas where maybe it's allowed, but you know, log it or um, put it into a queue for someone to actually look at it before it goes out? Absolutely. So I think uh, the policies tend to be different based on the control points of choice. If it's in line, it tends to be allow, block, or alert, as you said, right? Like um, mm -hmm. people use it as a forensic, like black box or flight data recorder, right? I've seen many right, people okay. use it like, hey, I'm a flight data recorder. I want to just basically log everything out of it and then take it and use it in case there is uh, an untoward incident. Mm -hmm. Then there is the whole API or out of band side where people are looking at classification and labeling as the heart of it. So they want to classify everything that's there. That way, that's where the data comes in, like two petabytes of data. How do I even go about this process? And every time a regulation or a mandate or a sensitive IP changes, then you have to reclassify. That is the whole notion of purpose-built granular classification that people care about. And the second thing tends to be quarantining. If there is a malware uh, or gray uh, gray area, they want to quarantine mm -hmm. files that are of interest. That's all. That's also something people uh, do out of band. 
Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a um, host of uh, use cases and a host of, uh, host of uh, outcomes that people look for. And how do you see customers getting their arms around it? Because the, the, the questions we've raised seems like, you know, you'd be in meetings for six months before you even deploy a product. How do you see customers sort of getting their toes in the water or starting to eat this elephant, uh, you know, just to even get this going? Absolutely. So I think that's where I think um, more forward looking, I would say, Gen AI and other other things come into play. But today, uh, by default, people provide pre-trained templates, pre-classified stuff that you can, on day zero, you can have these templates uh, inherited and apply it as part of your policy. So if mm -hmm. onboarding, during the onboarding phase, if I can tell you all of these things uh, and you're uh, basically proactively hinted to what you should be adopting, that's where the, that's that's what Palo Alto Networks strives for. And uh, on day zero, we try to give you that experience so that it's a white glove kind of a service, but more of a product-led growth kind of an initiative as well. Uh, and do you see a, a zero trust um, angle to all of this that we've talked about? Because that is definitely a topic du jour. DLP is front and center for zero trust, I would say. Um, so uh, right from monitoring access. So uh, even if you're going to say, I care about PII and you have to monitor access, so that again uh, entails around users, applications, locations, all of these things. So zero trust uh, in its fundamental tends to be complete visibility into various form factors and dynamically enacting these policies based on people's location, where they're coming from, home office um, or HQ, uh, what kind of applications they use, device attributes, all of mm -hmm. those things, managed, unmanaged, um, devices that are uh, compliant, non-compliant, stuff like that. Absolutely, zero trust plays a crucial factor as, as far as granular policies are concerned. And every transaction, right? Every transaction has to go through a whole notion of access enforcement and uh, authorization or a, or the zero trust verification, if you may. Yeah, mm -hmm. the whole CASB thing is kind of predicated on the fact that access control has been done. And zero trust is identity access management, you know, user verification, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that CASB doesn't solve that problem. It still needs that from some other product. Absolutely. Some other tools. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Because well, CASB is all about the content, the data in motion. It's not about the user identification or the user management or the, the device posture. And that's all. A, that's a different set of tools that sits outside of this, I think. Yeah, it goes back to um, how do we define our policies? How do we def how do we organize? What are all the tools yeah. in them? Uh, tools of trade that we are going to deploy. So uh, yeah. uh, uh, whether it's best of breed or whether it's a <laughs> platform story, it's uh, uh, the, the fairy tale remains to be told. I used to always love talking to security people and they'd always talk about policies and I'd be looking at them going like, you might talk about policies, but I have to write something into the firewall. What is, so what am I writing, Mr. Security person? He'd go, well, our policy says, I'm going like, you know, I want to slap him up the head and go like, just tell me what you, you know, but you know, but it, I think that's the advantage of this is we're getting away from, you know, I want to block this is the security policy and I have to work out how to block it. We're much more here aligning the security and the networking people to, the policy is to block access to Microsoft Office hosted off-prem, you know, yep. or Google Docs, right? Google Docs, very common for companies to block Google Docs, okay? I can actually write a rule straight into the system saying just block all access to Google Docs on in the branch, in the data center, you know, so on and so forth. Absolutely, Greg. You hit it right on the nail. Prasith, unfortunately, we're running out of time today. Thank you so much for coming on. This has actually been a super interesting discussion. We didn't get wound up too much about the product, but I think the product is very large, very broad. Is that right? It's not just like go and buy this. You can get five of them today. It's, it's much more of a different type of purchase process. Absolutely. So the, um, uh, the product tends to be any customer who wants detection in depth across control points of choice. 
So mm-hmm. I would say that's that's pretty much what it is. So um, uh, data discovery protection across control points and the product can be purchased as a NGCASB uh, plus DLP product line within Palo Alto mm-hmm. Networks. And you can start small and go big. So it's, it, I think one of the key things here is that it can grow at the speed that you want it to. You don't have to go and do a whole company thing straight up. Absolutely. It's a crawl, walk, run, definitely, certainly. And you can buy it for a targeted set of users and then expand beyond that. Thanks very much, Prasith. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for Drew to being here as well. As always, you can find this and many more fine free technical podcasts along with our website at packetpushes.net. If you found this interesting and you contact Palo Alto Networks, please make sure that you tell them where you heard about it. It's really helpful, not just to us, but also to the people at Palo Alto Networks. They want to know what it is that, you know, where did you find out about them? So make sure you tell them that would be so helpful to everybody involved uh, on all sides of the table here. Uh, As always, you can follow us on social media, pick your favorite one. We're on all of them and uh, don't hesitate to rate the show because if you liked it, uh, don't hesitate. If you want to tell us, send us some follow-up, head on over to packetpushes.net slash FU. It's all anonymous. We don't want to hear anything, but if you've got questions and you feel a bit reluctant to get in contact with Palo, you want to use us as a back channel, please do hit us up packetpushes.net slash FU. And last but never ever least, remember that too much security would never be enough.